1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Valerie Chep, who is the author of Speaking Truths, Young Adults, Identity, and Spoken Word Activism. Valerie, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Could you start by talking a little bit about how this book came to be, how you became interested in spoken word and and put this together? Sure. So... um...
2: My earlier work, I did earlier work on hip hop and women rappers while I was doing my master's work at the University of Chicago. So I was already interested in contemporary youth art forms that have kind of a deep political connection. So that was in the early 2000s I was doing that work. Um, And then during that time, I took an ethnographic methods class at the University of Chicago, and I had to pick a site for my field work. And I picked a poetry slam there in Chicago um, at the Green Mill on the north side of Chicago. And so that was really my first introduction into spoken word poetry, and, you know, I loosely, and I think a lot of people have this perception like, oh, spoken word is is like rap or, you know, it's like hip hop or there's connections between it. And I think we can talk about, you know, line- like connections between the two art forms, but they're also very distinct. And certainly going to the Green Mill and the, the poetry slam there, that became clear. But so that was sort of my first... Introduction to, to spoken word poetry. And then I, you know, set that work aside for quite a while. I did other stuff. I was out of school for a while. But then when I went back for my PhD, um, I was, you know, starting to think about what I wanted to research for my dissertation. And I still had an interest in in art, culture, popular culture social justice, um, activism, the connection between art and activism, and youth culture and young adults. And so so I started getting into the, the D.C. spoken word scene, just kind of checking it out, visiting venues. And I quickly learned that there was a very active scene there with a really long history. And so it was just sort of this this beautiful um, opportunity to to learn more and to research and get to know more about this this art form. And. As I started to attend poetry events and meet poets and talk with poets and think more about, you know, what a research project might look like, kind of some new questions emerged for me and, and piqued my interest. And so one was that was kind of the activist power that poets themselves assigned to the art form. I mean, young people really saw this art form as being able to do a lot of things from a political perspective. You know, I even heard it, it it saves lives, it changes the world. So that was really interesting to me. Like how did they see this art form as being so power, politically powerful? And then um, it also was able to tap into my interest in identity politics and, um, you know, including the limits of identity politics. My my, I was a women's studies undergrad major, along with sociology. So I've been really interested in how identity politics has has played into feminist activism, but has also um, been critiqued um, within uh, feminist activism, and how intersectionality has really emerged as this really. Um, sort of um, important analytic innovation around issues of social inequality. And so this art form, which is really connected to um, the poets, the performing poets identity, it was an opportunity for me to explore more about the connection between identity and politics, um, which again, kind of circles back to my earlier interest in um, black feminism and women rappers and, and women's studies and feminist, um, feminist activism.
1: So you, so you're studying DC and can you sort of set up what it was like during the time you were studying? Because it's been a while, you talk about things like even, um, busboys and poets that is now sort of blow exploded. Um, and so what it was at this time prior to a pandemic, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and and a lot of changes, kind of what that scene was like and and, and, and then who these participants were that you kind of talked to in the scene.
2: Yeah. It was a really um great time to be engaging in this world. And I talk about the, the the moment in time in the book as well. Um, so, you know, I was coming in at a time, as I said, there was a long, you know, several decades history of spoken word culture um, and, and even longer if we want to think about what oral art forms are more broadly. But um, so there was a long history already in place in Washington, D.C., But, um, you know, so when I came into the scene, there was, um, as I said, this long history, there was a lot of like new energy and new initiatives and new leaders in the community um, starting to... Um, start, starting to establish n- new events, new venues. So, I talk about how there was one um, existing slam that was already in place there, but a group of young people were starting a second slam in the city. Um, there was um, you know, some young people who are bringing Louder Than a Bomb to Washington, D.C., which is a youth poetry festival, they call it, but it's kind of like a youth poetry competition, but very friendly competition. Um, and by youth there, I mean teen, teenagers, teen poets. And so the the young people in my study are more young adults, like in, in their 20s, early 30s. And um, and so there was these, this new energy, this, these new initiatives happening. At the same time, some of the initiatives that had been in place for a while were starting to um, fade away or not be as popular. So a good example of that is, is Mother Tongue, which was um, a woman, a women's spoken uh, word venue, an event um, event. And so it was kind of these young people making sense of um, stepping in where previous people had kind of been leading these events and maybe were stepping back. So, we're young people stepping in and filling those shoes of maybe their elders, so to speak? Um, or, and at the same time, were they letting go of some of those earlier things and paving the way for new initiatives and new, new venues and um, new performance opportunities?
1: And before we get really get into things, I re- as you were talking, I thought maybe you could share a little bit about kind of spoke what spoken word, how right, and you talk about this a bit how they defi- how participants define spoken word and kind of what a poetry slam is for um people who uh, you know some people have heard of spoken word. I think it's become more and more popular, but also what that means to be a slam poet and, and how that's kind of defined. Sure. So,
2: um,
1: you know, oral
2: art forms, of course, (laughs) date back thousands of years before the written word. Um, But the term spoken word, at least how I chronicle it in the book, I argue kind of really got popularized or associated with its contemporary meaning with the advent of um of slam poetry and i make that connection or that argument and slam poetry kind of came about um in the 80s with the green mill in chicago and being um an important site for the emergence of of slam poetry. So that work that I did in the early 2000s, it's interesting how I didn't even know at the time that it was such a important uh, slam venue. And the the person who ran that slam's name is Mark Smith, and he's really well known in the slam community. Um, But that, um, you know, that wasn't the the birthplace of slam, as um, some people might argue. And uh, there's even a critique about um, placing the birthplace of slam poetry at that at the Green Mill with Mark Smith Um and saying that's kind of a whitewashing of slams history, which has very deep roots in uh, African American culture and a lot of black poets on Chicago's South Side. So um, the slam is a poetry competition, and it's where poets uh, speak with to an audience. So they are performing a poem in front of a live audience without the use of props, and the judge the judges are selected from the audience. So at the beginning of a slam, um, I think five judges are selected. And, you know, this and the idea is, is that this is really, you know, poetry for the people. These aren't sort of elite academics that are judging the value of the the aesthetic value of the poetry. But this is democratic. These are just your everyday, you know, people at the bar one night who are judging poetry and deciding which poem sort of rises to the top and wins at the end. So it's different performers perform all night long. Um, They're judged by the audience. Of they're judged by five members of the audience, and it's really so supposed to be sort of raucous. And if a judge sort of announces a score that the that you don't that you disagree with, you can boo, and you know you don't like that. Or they they give it a really high score, and you agree. Everyone goes wild, you know. And so it's supposed to be this sort of really um, energetic, dynamic. Um, not what you typically associate maybe with poetry, a poetry reading, very soft spoken, you know. Um, so, um, so that, so that is what slam is now spoken word is a broader category. Um, but spoken word, because of the advent of slam, it has developed, I argue in the book into being a certain way. So for example, at a slam poems, poems have to be three minutes or less. Well, spoken word poems now are about that. Length, you know, some poets want to be able to write, have poetry that they can do at an event or in a a slam, maybe an open mic or a, a slam. And so that's why they kind of keep to that structure. But that narrative structure that was imposed by slam rules has been replicated Elsewhere, I also argue that you know the slam scene. Um, there's local slam scenes, and then there is a national slam scene. There's a national poetry slam, which has since gone through in the more recent years um, some turmoil in national organization. And 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 I last I checked, I don't think they're having the national poetry slam. Um, but that world of at the national level is organized around cities. So local cities have their own slam teams. Well, that really, um, again, I argue, kind of creates... A certain um, aesthetic or approach to spoken word associated maybe with urban youth culture um, because of the way the national scene is organized, kind of rooted in the local scene in cities. So I spoken word and slam are different, um, but certainly related and have certainly sort of shaped the other.
1: And so, as you sort of go into this and look at this, you you kind of divide the book into different ways you see these young people performing and creating activist spaces. So, uh, can we and um, we could maybe just sort of walk through and talk about like the first is this idea of storytelling sort of um I think speaking truths right where you got the name of the book I'm guessing from um but can you talk a little bit about kind of what you found there and and how you saw some of these um participants um using this to like kind of tell their stories yeah so as um
2: you know, as I was starting to collect data, so and, and you know, by the way, I, I this was an eth- this is an ethnography. So I collected data by participating in this spoken word scene for for over two years, two and a half years. And I observed poetry events, I participated in poetry events. I had various participatory roles. you know I I certainly was an audience member. I was sometimes an event volunteer. I was sometimes a performing Poets, which didn't come easy to me, and I talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, I, you know, helped set up events. I helped, you know, break down events. I, um, I traveled with the the poets to the National Poetry Slam in Boston. So I did ethnographic participation, and then I also interviewed poets. And as I was collecting, you know, data and then making sense of the data as I was going around along, I was um, seeing, you know, themes emerge that had for a long time been really interesting to me. And so one was around this idea of knowledge and knowledge construction. Um, maybe my favorite grad school course I ever took was the sociology of knowledge and how knowledge is is even in of itself um, contested and socially constructed. And so I've always been really interested in this idea about knowledge and standpoint theory. This goes back to my interest in Black feminist thought and who gets to make knowledge claims and what what stands in for as knowledge and truth. And so that's always been interesting to me. And so then to see this world where this discourse around truth truth is so prominent was fascinating. So I definitely interrogated that more through the book. Um, you know, I was starting to see this connection between art and creativity and politics, which had long been interesting to me, as I mentioned, my interest in, in intersectionality and then in youth culture, but then also youth power, the idea of um, young people to be able to change their environment and um, and so those were things that I kind of saw that I thought were interesting. But then as I you know, was making sense of the data, some things surprised me as well. And that was um, or they were unexpected. Maybe I, I didn't go in thinking I was going to find this stuff. And so one was all the stuff around um, ideas about healing and healing through the arts and spoken word as sort of therapy and um, the connection between healing and social change the other unexpected thing or I didn't think I would find, I don't know why, but was, um, you know, this whole idea about hashtag activism. So I started my data collection in 2010. So, you know, that was... Um, some of these social media platforms were become, were, you know, just starting, not just starting, but really becoming pervasively used around that time. And so, you know, just seeing the important, and I was never a social media user much before this work. And so just sort of seeing the importance of online interactions in contemporary politics uh, was unexpected. And then I, I talk about um, just the role of then that online environment the methodological implications of that, you know, conducting ethnographic work when you're both doing this in-person work, but then there's this whole other level of interaction and discourse taking place online. So I kind of say all that just to, to talk about then the chapters of the book, you know, that kind of shakes out into how I organize the chapters of the book. And so, yes, that first chapter is really dives into sort of that big idea about truth and knowledge construction and the connection and the politicized um, implications of making knowledge-based claims, particularly around social justice, right? When when these are um, discourses or stories that don't, um, that are marginalized. Um, And so um, that spoken word served as an opportunity to both tell one's personal story, but that poets don't see that as sort of In the end, right in in and of itself, but they really connect these personal experiences, often about um, their stigmatized identities or marginalized aspects of their their experience. They place that in a larger social context, and um, you know, here I I make some connections between um, C Wright Mills's sociological imagination and how young people, or and how. sort of a sociological imagination is the ability to connect the personal to the social and they're doing that in this work.
1: Um, yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting too that they're doing this and they're also some critique of some of it being commodified, right? Um this idea of well we're going to hear a 15 poems about sexual violence. Or I think one of the you had one poet who has a disability and talks about hating another, you know, poem where someone comes up as sort of acting like they have a disability and, and eventually doesn't. Right. And so this kind of the, I don't know, the, you know, what's going on there, that sort of clash, maybe that's the word I'm looking for, is really interesting and fascinating. Um, I'd love for you to, you know, talk about some of that, too.
2: Sure, yeah. You know, I talk about, um, again, I'm a sociologist, so I bring in a lot of sociology in this book, but, um, you know, Howard Beckard's work on art worlds, and the implications of sort of the structural, social, structural environment on shaping an art form. And so I talk about how this, um, this attention to identity and personal experience has also been structured by the larger art world. Um, but because, to your question, because identity is such a central component, so our ideas about authenticity, right? And if you present yourself as having an identity or having a lived experience that you haven't actually lived is, um, can be critiqued among the poets. The poets can see that as, you know, disingenuous or problematic or not true, right? That's, that wasn't a true story that in the example that you told or shared here, um, And so this this, um, value placed on truth, authenticity, and expectations is really a core feature of the art form. But at the same time, and this is a larger argument I make throughout the book, and I and I didn't really start making this argument in my own head until I started writing the book and placing this art form in a particular social, political and economic context of neoliberalism. I talk about how this art form. Yes, is it's it's a it's a it, it's a demonstration of of young people pushing back against the injustices and deep inequalities that neoliberalism has um, produced and exacerbated, especially for young people. At the same time, it's this art form is also a reflection of many neoliberal sensibilities. And um, the the example you raise right now is a good um, demonstration of this in which, you know, spoken, they, they, this is an art form that is all about, you know, personhood making, self-making, one's identity, and then marketing oneself when they try to commodify this art form, marketing oneself around their identity, you know? So I talk about some of the poets who say, you know, well, you know, I... um I have a lot of poems. You know, I was trying to think about how, what could be my identity niche that a poet even said this, as I'm thinking about how I can try to, um, you know, make a living off of being a poet. And um, I have some experiences battling addiction. And, you know, I was thinking maybe I could, you know, kind of market myself around that. So how can they commodify their lived experiences too? So you see this tension or presence of both an effort to push back against neoliberal, um, kind of the products of neoliberalism, like, and what in that, when I mean the product of neoliberalism here, I'm talking about deep structural inequality, but it also is a product of neoliberalism. And it has, it really aligns to a lot of neoliberal sensibilities around, um, kind of, individuality, personal choice, um, commodification, um, kind of things like
1: that. Yeah. And to, um, kind of sort of jump around chapter wise, but like, that's one of those, right. You talk a little bit about that, like the gig economy about how, uh, these young people are trying to find ways to be their authentic selves, to promote their activism, but also find a way to earn a living um, to eventually to not have to work. You know, I think one of your charts shows sort of what the, where they're at school wise or sign sort of kind of that kind of thing. But right. We're in a, I mean, and I think we still are where young people are working three or four or five jobs. And so they're trying to like, to make sure they can do this and kind of be true to that space.
2: Absolutely. And in the spirit of jumping around chapters, you know, later in the um, sixth chapter around hashtag activism. But, you know, there's this also effort to pursue their passion, you know, and and that's a real noble pursuit as young people are trying to figure out what they want to do. How are they going to make a living, this um, idea of pursuing their art form, pursuing their passion, but also this is a type of, this is very precarious employment and it's not stable employment. It doesn't have benefits. Um, it doesn't have protections. You know, you could show up to um, an event and maybe, you know, it's raining that night and nobody shows up and there's not a lot of money at the door that of people coming in and you walk away with very little money or no money. Right. Right. And um, and so poets that are trying to figure out ways of how can I incorporate poetry in my work? Because this is, you know, I think it's important. I think it can change the world. I think it can save lives. I think it's it's my passion. I'm good at it. I it's my whole kind of also professional social friendship networks for all these reasons. Um, but it's a very. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy and it's not lucrative for, for the majority of them.
1: And it seems, too, um, that you, you talk about and some of these poets talk about the ways in which what they are doing is sometimes then commodified by outside spaces like the venue or other people who are sort of taking advantage of that the, the labor, right. The poetry labor, um, without the poets really seeing some of those advantages and how that sort of works in this. And, And that's an activism space as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's tensions running
2: throughout, you know, tensions between, you know, art and labor, tensions between, you know, um, you know, pushing back against neoliberalism, but then also promoting neoliberal sensibilities. I mean, there's tensions throughout the entire book.
1: But some of these young people also were able to use their spoken word to, um, whether it's not necessarily a monetary, but in some, in some ways, but really create some of these spaces for themselves, recreate activist spaces, um, create um, a name for themselves. So I'm, uh, I'm not going to remember. Well, I should, um, but the young woman who does the work, uh, the body positivity work.
2: Right. Uh, so can Sonya you talk about, yeah, a
1: little bit about those ways that they are using and and sort of really seeing that um, activism coming through. Sure. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, and you know, um, Sonia is a great example of you know, I mean, she's extremely well known by this point. I mean, she's, she has, you know, published books, she gives commencement speeches. I mean, she's extremely well known. Um, but yeah, it started, I mean, she, her organization is called The Body is Not an Apology. And that started as a spoken word poem. And then I kind of tell the story of how that, you know, came to be and came to grow into this international social justice movement and um, but there's other poets who are y- using their their poetry to create these activist spaces. So, for example, Duane has done a lot of work around um, HIV/AIDS activism, and he incorporate and he does do that work um, professionally too. Has done that work professionally, and he. Um, incorporates poetry into his work, doing that, working with young people. I mean, this is a very um, appealing mode of interacting with, with young people. It's a way in in the same way that there's been tons of stuff around hip hop pedagogy, you know, in using, um, I don't know, tools of youth culture to engage youth. Um, So Poets do, do that, um, and they do that in some more um, obvious ways, like working, you know, like Dwayne and Sonia. Um, Mary Bowman was another person who used poetry um, for doing HIV-AIDS activism. Um, but also in more subtle ways, you know, they just they felt like like Abisola, um, also doing work around body Positivity, but then also kind of challenge challenging um, like white beauty ideals, and really seeing her work performing just at slams and open mics as a way to um, do that activist work. I mean, she she was an engineering student. She has you know a whole other thing that she's doing. So she didn't kind of do this as her job, but she saw that as activist work that she was doing
1: and one of the other things that i think is that i think is really fascinating that you really talk about and show um is creativity politics right that idea that politics you know, and and it sort of it's underlying it's underlined throughout the whole thing but you really you know forefront that as well that they are really thinking of how to meld creativity and political, like this is not, oh, and then it became activists, right? This is like, how do I make sure this happens?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, And, you know, in, in, I have a chapter on this creative politics and there I talk about kind of two main themes i guess maybe in that chapter one being how they use the tool aesthetic tools to to um to convey their their activist messages right so that how they actually use the beauty of the art form or the tools of oral like orality you know to to make their messages Um, relatable and I use the example of Mary's poem Dandelions I give a close reading of that poem in that chapter and show how um, she uses aesthetic techniques like literary techniques metaphor juxtaposition her own performance you know um, tools of voice and tempo and you know volume to make this story, which is really about her mother dying of AIDS, and then Mary being born HIV positive and living with HIV. This story... um, relatable to maybe somebody in the audience who has never been personally touched by HIV AIDS and you know the story about she uses the the image the metaphor of a dandelion about how her mother was a dandelion she didn't know her own power she didn't know her own perseverance but unlike roses, right? So she's juxtaposing it against roses who have kind of were born with this sort of unearned protection of thorns. We might think of privilege in that way um, to protect it. Um, But, you know, but, but we don't really give dandelions enough credit is sort of the point. And they're stigmatized and they're not given attention and they're even, you know, cast away. But by the end of the poem, I argue that a listener, we have all been a dandelion at one point in our life. And we've all seen the unfairness of the attention roses get and the actual monetary value that roses are, you know, assigned. And um, so I, I talk about, you know, the first theme in that chapter is about how poets use to, the tools of art uh, to make their messages relatable. And I introduce this idea of sort of empathic transcendence, how maybe one can empathize with a story um, or an issue even if they have not been um, personally touched by it. And then the second part of that chapter on creative politics is about the creative process, the practice, and how cultivating an artistic practice um, is kind of not a one-stop shop. You don't do it once and then you're done. You have to cultivate it over time. You don't always see where it's going, where it's gonna lead you. And I say that a lot of the tools cultivate in their um, sort of pursuit of a creative artistic practice are the same sorts of tools you need in an activist practice too. You don't always know where you're going. You don't it's it's not always about the end point but it's just as important about the middle points too, right? How do you achieve that end point? Um how do you make it sustainable? How do you avoid, you know, burnout? How do you, you know, it's not something you turn on and off. It's not like and I'm an activist, you know, like, but how do you cultivate this way of life and being? And so that's the second part of, of that sort of chapter on creative politics, that um, the second theme in that chapter.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
1: So uh, one of the things you talk about is that this you know, this healing justice that it's not just an add-on to the community, right? But it really is part um, and being part of this community and being, is thinking about how you can use the space as a space of healing, as a space of sort of um, thinking about healing around these issues. So could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Sure. Yes, you know, and I, I had mentioned that this theme around healing was really um, unexpected. I didn't know that was going to be something so prominent, but it was. It it showed up a lot, and these young people really see the art form as a way to heal from some of the injustices tr- or traumas that they have experienced. You know, in and And that they talk about in their poetry, these ideas around stigma and marginalization and, and, um, but importantly, they don't, you know, and so on the one hand, somebody, you know, that argument could be made, well, this whole emphasis on healing and self care and, you know, individual, you know, focusing on your individual traumas, you know, aligns nicely with neoliberal sensibilities around individuality and, and personal accountability, or it's your personal responsibility to, to move on or to figure out how to um, sort of prevail. But importantly, how the poets talk about healing is you know, kind of twofold. One, they don't locate their individual traumas in an individual framework. They very much ground their analyses in a a sociological one, quite frankly, right? Recognizing that their traumas are the root cause of their traumas or traumatic experiences are social, are there, there's social causes. Um, you know, it's, it's not their own personal failing that maybe they um, struggled in school or didn't get a job or um, were sexually assaulted, right? But that these are, this is institutionalized racism or patriarchy. And they make that very clear in their speaking truths, connecting their individual experiences to social and um, social structures, So that's, you know, kind of on the one hand, how they connect the individual and social in this, in this, through this um, kind of, uh, heal in this healing context. Um, The other way they connect the individual and the social in the context of healing is that they very much understand individual healing as being part and parcel of successful social justice work. And that to 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 do this work to, to we need to heal the whole community we need to heal society from these social ills um and so and you know in 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 that vein i make an argument about how the poets aren't unique in this regard, but there's a history of social justice movements that have connected ideas around love or healing or self care to larger um, liberation movements. And so, you know, the, the black Panther party and their health activism are second wave black feminism and a lot of Audra Lorde's work around self care and other black second wave feminist poets also doing a lot of work around love or Jennifer Nash talks about second wave black feminisms, love politics, um, even, you know, Dr. King's beloved community. So love has been a theme in other emancipatory movements. And we see that in, in what the poets are doing as well.
1: and yeah, you sort of you end the, like your final chapter, I think is really interesting with thinking about how do we sustain and and how do we even think about activism, right? And well, I guess your final one about what, you know, what's going on in your study is this idea of like, how do we think about this with like this digital world, right? With the hashtags, with all of that. And And so can you talk about how you see them um, kind of using and thinking about social change and activism in this, those digital spaces?
2: Yeah. So they were, for the most part, avid digital users and, as I said earlier, I was, I never had a Facebook account or a Twitter account before I started this work, but it became quickly clear I would need one if I was going to know when anything was going on. And again, this is, you know, 2010, maybe starting even prepping the work in 2009. And so um, they they interacted very fluidly in both face to face and online environments in fact and i talk about this in then that methodological chapter and i talk about the implications of this but it could be very quickly overwhelming from an ethnographic point of view trying to capture a moment or a scene because there's this one level of interaction happening, let's say at a slam or an open mic or a poetry workshop, but then they are also all back channeling and talking to each other on Twitter about it as well. And so, you know, I talk about the methodological challenges of that in the, in the methodological appendix of the book, but, um, but yes, they, they really see, you know, Activism can take place both face to face and online. Um, It's a way that they engage teens um, and younger people in their poetry. Um, But again, you know, with this theme of neoliberalism, I also talk about how the internet and these these platforms. We can understand them as almost neoliberal apparatuses, right, or products of this particular social economic moment. Um, but they use the tools of neoliberalism to um, to amplify their messages, and it's not just to amplify their messages, but it's also to build activist networks. And you know, I, I talked earlier about Sonia Renee Taylor um, and how she did that in building her organization. The body is not a an apology. I mean, that started, as I said, a poem, but then became a Facebook page and it's an online organization that has face-to-face, um, components to it. But also another really well-known poet in my study, um, is Clint Smith, who now, you know, just had a book on New York times bestseller. I mean, he's incredibly successful since I was doing my field work. Um, But again, he used his online networks, which he built through being a poet in many ways, um, got well-known, ended up doing some TED Talks that have millions of views each, and, um, and then really used that as a way to eventually, now in his Twitter platforms, you know, he tweets something. He has this huge audience that he's speaking to Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and, and those are two really sort of higher profile examples, but, but the poets, um, have very large followings that they have built as a result of doing poetry in many ways.
1: Yeah. And, and so you, you, you know, with all of this, what you're talking about really sort of bleeds nicely into this idea of, intersectionality right and the importance of this and I and I really appreciated that when we often and I think it connects to this activism In like the hashtag activism, because we often think about young people, or often the rhetoric is young people are not activists, young people are not. um, But you argue, and I would agree with you that this is not the true, right? This is not the case. uh, But we need to think about it. We need to look at the strategies they're using. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you see this new, you you know, you talked about identity politics and, and how you see this evolving within this space.
2: Yes. Um yeah, that last chapter, that was another one that I, I didn't originally even have in the book, but um it's, you know, intersectionality as activist strategy. And it, it gets maybe a little bit more into the weeds of intersectionality and intersectionality theory and um and um, you know, scholarship but it was a fun chapter to write and i talk about you know how you know intersectionality you know it's so interesting now how like i rem- you know how intersectionality the term it's a, it's almost it's like a buzzword right and like even really mainstream people now will use this term intersectionality which is fascinating to me um but in this, I'm building off a lot of the work of intersectionality scholars in that chapter, but how, what, we can think of almost as spoken word activism as a case study or exemplar of intersectionality as an actual activist strategy. So, you know, not just sort of um, intersectionality as a theory or a way of making sense of social inequalities and how so different dimensions of inequality come together and intersect into resulting into unequal outcomes for different groups, right? That, that was a real sort of um, intellectually that was... Um, in innovation in, in social theory and social theories around inequality. So that was a real theoretical um, innovation and sort of set of, tools that scholars at kind of started, maybe scholars were given to make sense of social arrangements and unequal arrangements, but also thinking about intersectionality. And this has been there all along, but intersectionality as praxis, as as a way of doing. I mean, I would argue it is a social justice theory. It's not just about making sense of, oh, and this is social inequality. This is how we can make sense of social inequality, but it's also, this is what we can do to eradicate or address social inequality or change it. And so in that chapter, I really focus on that second part of of praxis and doing an intersectionality as activist strategy. And I suggest that the spoken word poetry is a really good case study in thinking about intersectionality um, as an activist strategy beyond, you know, not just sort of like including diverse voices. That's certainly important, um, but actually fundamentally thinking about how we relate to each other um, as, as in different ways, you know, in through an intersectionality lens, you know, and here the idea of how we think about how knowledge claims are made, how we think about um, empathizing with people who are different from us or maybe seeing different points of view, um, how we think about you know, healing an individual as a as a emancipatory endeavor, a social emancipatory endeavor, um, we can think about all of these as fundamentally changing how, or kind of thinking differently about our our, our relationships and how intersectionality um, can be an activist strategy, and how the spoken word activism is a good example of that um, element of activism.
1: So, you know, so you've, you've written this, but I want to ask you, well, I have a couple of questions, but your appendix. So you chose to do, you know, to write a pretty lengthy appendix of like doing this research and what that was like. so, I mean, could you talk about why that, that choice of including, you know, your first appendix about your ethnographic research? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, well, you
2: know, maybe part of it was part of my decision was I really looked at other ethnographies that I admired and a lot of them had methodological appendixes where they reflect on um, the, the research they were doing. And so that I, I wanted to, um, I love those ethnographies. And so I wanted to, 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 I thought it was a good idea. I also love methods. Um, And I love qualitative methods. And I love ethnography. And I love thinking about, and this goes back to my interest in knowledge construction, but how the connection between methods um, and then knowledge claims, you know, so methods are so important, because we think about like, oh, that was data, that was real, that was And here, you can't see my air quotes, you know, but like, that is the truth. That is, You know, and it's all fraught. It's all no matter what your methods are, they um, all sorts of decision making goes into um, the methodological choices we make. And so so that's the other thing is I just love talking about methods. I wasn't expecting um, sort of the questions to arise that did in my ethnography. And it was largely because of the, the presence of the online component. And so I talk about in that appendix, some of the challenges of that, absolutely. And I kind of spoke to that one about how there's so much going on in a scene and there's this back channeling and this face-to-face interactions happening, but um but also the real opportunities that I wasn't expecting either. How can we leverage the tools of or leverage the presence of of the online environment in our ethnographic um, in our ethnographic methods? And so that is why um, I wrote that chapter. And you know, maybe one thing I'll say about the methods and I talk about in the chapter, but so when I started this work, you know, um, I was always taught as an ethnographer that you use pseudonyms to protect your, your, your research participants and you kind of mask everything. You, you don't, you say, you know, in a, in a mid, mid-size mid urban area on the Eastern seaboard or something, you know, like you don't, you don't ever say where you are or what you're doing. And, and there's a real good reason for that. I mean, there's a history of really um, harming people involved in research. But so very quickly, though, when I started doing this work, the young people I was working with were like, you know, please use my real name, use my work. I mean, they work really hard to, to get their messages out, to get their word out, to get their poetry out in the world. And the idea of masking them was not what they wanted. That was not what they wanted. So I had to go back and, um, you know, revise my IRB and or amend it. And But I talk about in that final appendix, you know, even if I was trying to make everybody anonymous, the presence of, you know, online social media would make that very hard. You know, I mean, it was, it'd be very probably easy to see if anybody looked at, you know, my Twitter feed, who I was talking to. I mean, it's, and so I think as from methodolo- a methodological conversation, and I connect this also to IRB decisions, it's like we have to have an honest conversation about that. And this is being had more broadly about even, you know, masking and some of ethnographic research. But, um, but this this study just raised, it was so rich for engaging those, those big methodological questions. And so that's why I used that opportunity of the appendix to, to talk about some of that.
1: So so I you know we've had since this we we've had a pandemic we've sort of or we're still in a pandemic I guess um but you know um this has changed kind of in some ways how spaces where right performance spaces have to have changed and and so have you you know I'm guessing you know (laughs) my question might be going like like how what changes have you seen or you know or and do you think they're I mean I don't know if it's an and but are these lasting kind of changes in a community and in a space where a lot of it has to do with interacting not only like performing but being part you talk about you know we're performing and then we become part of the audience and, and and this kind of, what does that mean for this? Yeah.
2: And, you know, I haven't been back in, in DC for, for several years. Um, But I have been, you know, loosely following what's been going on. I know, and this is, I think even before the pandemic, the two slams that I followed, they have since dissolved the open mics um you know spit that is the longest running open mic in washington dc it's it's very important to that community and to those to, to those participants and spit that has continued they've have a virtual they've done a virtual kind of um, version, and I have seen poets posting about, you know, open mics are starting to to be had again, you know, come out and perform, and um, so I think it's slowly opening up, just like many spaces are slowly opening up, but it's a great question, um, you know, to see. It was already a challenge for some of these venues to sustain, you know, there was a lot of turnover, um, venues would close or they'd go through, you know, or maybe they were just in a coffee shop for a while, you know, and that would, that relationship dissolved, you know, so some of these, um, less institutionalized relationships were already pretty precarious. So it will be interesting to see what happens to the scene as, you know, they were already vulnerable, some of those relationships, But you know what, this is a really um, creative group and so it'll be interesting to see and it has been interesting to see how new arrangements have emerged as as a result of this pandemic.
1: So I will ask you my final question (laughs) that I ask. Um, And, and so is there anything that you're working on now or anything with this book, like that final, like what's going on that you want to, you know, get out there, promote or make sure you want to plug?
2: Yes. Well, I also very much appreciate that question because, you know, I, um, so this book just came out last month in February and I started a new job last um, fall in September, and so I moved from an academic. 10 Tenured associate professor position at a small liberal arts college, and I am now a qualitative methodologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and so I, um, I in some ways, you know, I just see this as this like real large career pivot I made, and and it was kind of a little like um, disjointed to see like my book on spoken word poetry come out after I'm in this position in the healthcare delivery and implementation science center at the Cleveland clinic. And I'm like, Oh, those, those worlds are so different. You know, I don't really, I'm, I've, I'm, doing different stuff and this is, you know, really tapping into my interest in qualitative methods, but um. You know my, and I'm bringing in sociology, of course, but you know the idea of you know poetry or creativity or art. I don't really see the connections, and and I've really um, you know had to like come to terms and really start thinking about that. And and I actually think, and this is an argument I make through the book and the poets taught me that activism takes place in all these unexpected spaces and can show up and, um, you know, can look differently in different places. And so my work around, you know, um, uh, like social inequality and making um, spaces more socially equal, I mean, my work now is really, all about that. It's all about how do we implement healthcare practices um, in ways that are effective, pragmatic, doable, and equitable. And um, so, you know, I when I think about, like, oh, that's that's really different work, and I'm doing something different now. I'm I'm not in many ways, you know, I'm I'm still absolutely working with the same big ideas. But, you know, I really should take a page from the Poets Lesson book about you can do this work anywhere. And and so that's what I'm doing right now.
1: Well, it has been really wonderful talking with you about this and about your work. Um, again, this was Valerie Chep, who's the author of Speaking Truths, Young Adult, Identity and Spoken Work Activism. Thanks for talking with me for new books and popular culture. Thanks, Rebecca.